ask you to bow your heads, and I'm going to, in just a moment, voice a prayer, a pastoral prayer. Before I do, give you an opportunity while you stand there as our ushers come forward to take the offering, just an opportunity for us to pause again this morning as Jim has so well said and led in our worship. Guys, we have much to be thankful for today. Let me read just a portion of Psalm 50. With your heads bowed. Contemplate God's goodness to us. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. Our Father, we rejoice as your people today as we recognize afresh this morning that you have not kept silent. You have come. You have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for that. Now as we continue in prayer this morning, here's an opportunity for each of us to offer confession to our Lord. Psalm 51, the psalmist cries out, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Father, we ask forgiveness of sins. We come this morning humbly before you, claiming our petition in Jesus Christ, for we have cast ourselves upon him, and in him we are made righteous. We thank you for your abundant grace made available to us in the cross of Christ. Lord, as we continue our worship today, we pray that the things we do and say would be pleasing to you. Father, as we approach the time of the study of your word, we we cast ourselves upon the power of the preaching of the word, and we pray that through your word, our hearts and our lives would be changed for your glory. Now, Father, we, we call upon you, Father, to intercede on behalf of members in our congregation who have faced difficult days this week. There are, there are sons here this morning who have buried a father this week. There are grandsons here today who will bury a grandfather on Tuesday. We lift these people up to you. Father, we pray that you would comfort these families, renew them, renew their strength. May they rise up again soon, rejoicing in the goodness of God. And Father, we thank you for taking care of Garrett Vaughn this week and the tragedy and the Lord, how critical the hours were this week. We thank you for protecting his life and for the successful surgery Friday evening. Raise him up from his sickbed. Now, Father, as we come to this portion of the service where we give of our offerings, we give them with, with gladness of heart, celebrating your goodness to us. You are a good God. You have surrounded us with so many good things. We give back a portion of what you've given to us, and by that say, we love you. All that we have comes from you. Thank you, dear God. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, I'm not Dr. Young. He's on vacation this week and will be returning to us next Sunday to continue our study in the book of Judges. I thought I'd stay in the Old Testament this Sunday and look briefly this morning with, uh, with you... Uh, just a couple of verses out of Exodus 20. We're only going to look at Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Of course, this is the great chapter of the Ten Commandments, but we're not going to, of course, take the time. We don't have the time to study all the Ten Commandments today. But before I read Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, I want to go back and just read 
kind of spot read a few verses in chapter 19 so we can set the context of the stage of what happens in Exodus 20. Look in Exodus 19, verse 1. It's recorded that in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. Now look over in verse 16. What happens between verses 1 and verse 16 of Exodus 19? After three months, three months to the day that the children of Israel are liberated from Egypt, they come to the desert of Sinai, and the following verses records for us that there's a conversation between Moses and God. And God gives Moses very specific instructions about what they're to do as they prepare to meet God. They're preparing for worship. God tells Moses, have the people cleanse themselves, prepare for worship. Now in verse 16, on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Chapter 20, verse 1, and, and verse 2. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Back in the month of December, I began preparing a study, or began preparing for a study of the book of Exodus chapter 20, particularly the Ten Commandments. My plans were to have this ready, and after the first of the year, I was going to teach this study, and we're currently in this study in our couples class on Sunday morning, a study of the Ten Commandments. Now, here's how I do my planning. Um, I have to work smart because I have many other things to do around here rather than just study and prepare to preach and teach. But, and so my plans are, uh, hopefully in the spring, late spring or early summer, to teach on Wednesday nights possibly four to five weeks on the Ten Commandments. So what you're getting this morning is just an introduction to the Ten Commandments. In fact, this is called chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, a prologue to the Ten Commandments. So what I want to do this morning is look at verses 1 and 2 and just look at some very obvious assumptions that we can make from God's Word, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Now, the first assumption is very obvious to us. In fact, guys, what we're about to notice again this morning is so obvious to us as Christians that I think we fail to appreciate its implications daily in our lives. And here it is. The first assumption is this. There is a God, and He has revealed Himself. There is a God, and He has revealed Himself. Again, you know that the concept of God is a natural thing. That's what Paul teaches in the book of Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal powers and divine natures have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now what Paul says there is, Every man knows, in fact, it's written upon the hearts of men that there is a God. We know that there's a God. Creation teaches us that there is a God. And we call this general revelation. Now, here's the implication of this general revelation. See, God knew something about us. God knew that left to ourselves, 
we would never have discovered him. And so he takes the initiative. In general revelation, God declares himself in creation. There is a God. Now there's a caution here in this general revelation because one of the reasons there's so much religious confusion in our day is because many people base their or build their religion upon a purely natural basis. And it's not sufficient. That because of sin, general revelation alone is not trustworthy. And so God goes a step further. He reveals himself in another way. We call this special revelation. Now let me illustrate special revelation for you this morning. A week before last, my sister-in-law called me and said that her daughter, my niece, was coming through Memphis, uh, through the airport, making a connection flight on her way home to Orlando, Florida. Now, I haven't seen my niece in probably three years. And besides that, she had with her her newborn son, Preston Quaid, nine months old, I should say. And I've never met Preston, so I made an effort that afternoon to go out to the airport to, to greet my niece as she made her connecting flight. I could spend 45 minutes an hour with her and meet my new great-nephew. I went out to the airport that afternoon. I walked in the main foyer there, you know, the mall area, and I found where a flight was coming in and turned right to go down to Concourse C to meet the incoming flight. And I was, as I was walking down that way, it, a thought occurred to me, you know, every time I come to the airport, I see people from Grace Van. Just without exception, you go to the airport and you'll see people you know. And I'm thinking, I'm walking out here to meet my niece. She, she's half my age, a very attractive young lady, and she's got with her her newborn son. And um, I'm out here in the middle of the afternoon, and I know I'm going to see somebody from Grace Van. I thought, I could have some fun with this. So I went down to Concourse C and found where her flight was coming. I sat there, and she, the, the plane came in, and I greeted her. And we had a, just a brief reunion there. So I escorted my niece and my great-nephew down to uh, the, the next, I think it was Concourse B, across the way there. Now, you know when you get from Concourse C to B, traffic picks up quite a bit. And so we went down to Concourse B there, and we, we took a seat right out at the edge of the, of the row there, right out in the, in the breezeway area. And um, I sat down there, and lo and behold, here comes a couple from Grace Van, husband and wife. And I was so tempted. I was going to say something like, oh, please don't tell Carl you saw me here today. You know? <laughs> but I didn't have the nerve to do that. So. But my niece had stepped into the ladies' room, and I was sitting there with uh, Preston Quaid, and I introduced Preston to this couple. You'd know if I mentioned name. In fact, the husband is here in this service this morning. And I introduced my great-nephew to uh, this couple, and they left, went on their way. Now, that's not the whole reason I'm telling you the story. I'm coming to the illustration right here. I've never seen my great-nephew before. This is the first time you've seen, he's seen me. I took advantage of that 45 minutes that afternoon, and I got to know Preston Quaid, and he got to know me. Here's what I did. I said, Preston, now, I'm going to get to know you today, and you're going to get to know me. Now, I'm going to tell you some stories here. I'm going to tell you about your great-grandfather. I'm going to tell you a little bit about your grandfather, my brother. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. And we had a conversation that afternoon uh, there in the airport. Now, you know how Preston Quaid responded to me? He didn't because I didn't talk to him that way. You know what I did? I set him, I got him out of his carrier and I set him on one of those seats there in the airport and I got beside him and I got down in his face and I talked to Preston Quaid in a language he could understand. And before I finished that day, I had him laughing, smiling. In fact, he was throwing his arms up and down, and we had us a blast that afternoon. He got to know his Uncle Richard because 
I got down on his level. I communicated to Preston Quaid in a language he could understand. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to share with you the way I talked to him that day. It embarrassed some of you, embarrassed myself. But I tell you what I did. I talked to him in what we call baby talk. And he got to know me. Now, guys, John Calvin once said, describing the Bible, he said, the Bible is God's act of prattling to his people. Baby talk. That is... God comes down to our level and he communicates to us in a language we can understand. The word of God. Now that's called special revelation. Now guys, there's great implication here. I don't know where you are today in your life. And in a crowd this size, there are all kinds of things going on in our individual lives. Some of you are facing tremendous decisions this week. Maybe you're out of a job. You're looking, you're looking for work. Uh, you're thinking about changing careers, relocating, lots of decisions to meet. I don't know where you are, but you can rejoice this morning because God has drawn near to his people. He has come alongside of us. I spent uh, that same week, I spent a little time with Sherry McKinley and her son Ryan. Now, you know the McKinleys, what they're going through with rusty sickness. You know why we could rejoice that afternoon together and share in God's promises because God has spoken. He has revealed himself to us. He has not remained a distant God. He has drawn near to his people. Last night I received a phone call about 9.30. In fact, I was looking over these notes when the phone call came in. And here was a mother who's weeping over the, or a daughter weeping over the phone. Her father had just gone to meet the Lord. Paula Davis, Paula Majors, father, died last night, late yesterday afternoon. Now, you know why in that phone conversation... We, I could encourage Paula because of this truth right here. God has spoken. He has drawn near to his people. God has revealed himself to us. The first implication of Exodus 20 verse 1 is there is a God and he has revealed himself. Secondly, if there is a God like this, then we can assume that he would communicate to us exactly how he expects us to live. Lewis Meads, in his book, I think was written in the early 1980s, a book entitled Mere Morality, defines the Ten Commandments this way. Smeads says the Ten Commandments are God's moral character written in human language. I love that definition. These are not merely a list of things we can and cannot do. This is God revealing something of his nature to us, the moral character of God written in human language. A week ago Saturday, I watched the inauguration, as many of you did, and I watched as our, our government transferred power from one president to the other. You noticed after the inauguration, the, president, the new president and his wife were invited over at the congressional hall to, to a, a, a luncheon with joint Congress. And I noticed as President Bush and his wife walked into the hall, the band struck up the tune, Hail to the Chief. Everyone in the hall stood and clapped as President Bush and his wife came into the, into the dining area. Guys, you know why people stand up when they hear that song? Because it's played for no one else but the president. It's a, it's a song set aside, it's a tune set aside to announce that the president of the United States is entering the room. As I watched that afternoon, I noticed that not one person in that congressional hall fell to their knees as President Bush entered the room. Not one person trembled as our president entered. You know why? 
though he's our president, everyone recognizes that George W. Bush is just a man. He's human like all of us. As we read in our text this morning, the events that God uses to announce himself are quite different, quite extraordinarily different. Notice that Moses said that God's revelation on Sinai was accompanied by claps of thunder and flashes of lightning so that all the people who were in the camp trembled, Moses said. He also said that the top of Mount of Sinai was ablaze with fire so that it reached to heaven. Now why, gang? Why all this visible and audible demonstration? Because God was revealing himself to us in a language that we could understand. Because God was about to remind his people that there's only one true God and he alone is worthy to perceive our glory, his, our glory and his honor. I am God, he would say, and there is no other. Now this message to Israel is no less valid to the church today. I think this is at least in part why the writer of Hebrews in, in a way recreates the scene we've just read about in the book of Exodus when he says that though we do not come near a physical mountain blazing with fire, covered with darkness, and surrounded by stormy winds, we are to serve God with just as much honor, he would say. We are to respect God, for the writer of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming God. Now guys, when you think about this point, if there, if there is a God like this, that he would communicate to us just exactly how he's, he expects us to live. I want you to think in corporate terms, in a corporate sense. Don't think in terms of an individual. Think in terms of the community of Christ, a community or a people that's to become a prototype of God's new nation. And here, God lays claim to his people when he says that you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, guys, I think Peter's concept of the people of God as a royal priest of a holy nation wasn't a novel idea of his day. It was as old as the book of Exodus. He understood that God had laid claim to his people with an outstretched arm. He had claimed us, and we were to become a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Now, by the way, guys, this is the reason, I've just explained to you the reason why it's so devastating when someone among us fails morally. And I'm talking about the, the body of Grace Evan. When someone within us, uh, among our ranks, commits a, a public notorious sin, it impacts all of us. We're all discouraged. We're all hurt because we're a corporate body a nation, a people joined together. Now guys, the point here is, this is the basis of our own moral character as his people. You see, what I'm saying is, the standard that God sets for us begs the question, why? Why the standard? Why are, to we, why are we to act justly? Because God is just. Why are, we, why are we to love mercy? Because God is merciful. Why are we be, to be faithful? Because God is faithful. So if there is a God like this, we can assume that he would communicate just exactly how he expects us to live. Thirdly, from verse 1, we can make the assumption that the commandments are good. The law of God is good. The commandments fit life. And thus, perpetual disobedience of God's law will eventually break life apart. Israel remains our great object lesson here, for obedience, we would learn, makes life humane in the land. 
Could this be the reason the psalmist would sing love songs to the law, as in Psalm 119, where he says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Guys, the commandments of God are good. They fit life. Now look in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When I was studying this particular verse back in December, one afternoon in the office, I kept thinking, why did, why did God give the commandments now? I mean, why at this particular point in the history of Israel? Why not while the children of Israel were in bondage? Why couldn't he have delivered the commandments then? They had all that time on their hands. The fathers could have taught the children. They could have hidden these things in their heart. Could have been much better prepared for the days that were coming. But why now? Could it be because God's law was uniquely different? God's law, unlike Pharaoh's, pointed to a life of freedom within the covenant. The Ten Commandments follow Israel's undeserved deliverance. They're not the words of a dictator who says, Obey and be quiet. They'd learned that under Pharaoh. These are the words of Yahweh, the liberator, who wants his people to stay free. Again, the Exodus event is a reoccurring theme all throughout Scripture. In fact, the concept out of Egypt, just that phrase, out of Egypt, occurs some 76 times in 74 verses alone. So, in subsequent generations... When a son would come to his father and say, Father, what do these laws mean? Who is this God that we serve? The father would begin by telling the story of Israel's deliverance. Their God, he would say, was, was a God who brought them out of Egyptian bondage. He was their deliverer. Now, why the rehearsal of this Exodus event? Because liberation defines the covenant relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And liberation would remain a major theme when teaching the law. It, it almost establishes for, our, for God's people this proper order of grace, the mercy of God, deliverance, unmerited favor, and the response of God's people, obedient love. Now listen, this is important. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, really give us a hint as to how the, in, the Ten Commandments are to be interpreted. Now, they are a, indeed a set of rules, rules for liberated people. They're rules, they're guidelines to people who must not be foolish enough to fall back into slavery. Liberation is a major theme of Exodus 20, but it's not the main theme of Exodus 20. The prologue, if you notice, does not say, you are the liberated ones whom I've delivered out of Egypt. It says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord who delivered you. God is the main theme of Exodus 20. And this is not about you are free, live as you please. In fact, God has redefined this idea of personal freedom. Again, there's a, there a cry in our land, in our culture, in our society for freedom. In this age of individualism, people want to live as they please. Leave me alone. Let me live as I, as I wish to live. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, let me live as I please. Freedom. What God has done is redefine freedom for us. It is not the right to do what a person wants to do, 
but through his covenant people it becomes the power to do what we ought to do. The concept of liberation leads, guys, to this response of, I am now free in Christ. Now I have the ability and the power to live in a way that pleases God. Look back with me. I want to read a text back in Exodus chapter 6. Just turn to your left just a few pages. Exodus 6. Look at this. Exodus 6. Let's read verse 6, beginning there. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Again, as we began this morning, I told you that the concept of God is a natural thing. We saw it in Romans 1. Let me add to that. The concept of God is a natural thing, but the concept of God as a personal God is uniquely Christian. Here we see in covenant language, God says to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. Again, this covenant promise is ultimately fulfilled in the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ. For it's in Christ that the Father comes alongside of us. It's in Christ that the Father dwells in our midst. He truly becomes our people, our God. Now guys, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel were taught this message by God himself. God promised Israel that he would pitch his tent and dwell in their midst. They were a nomadic people who lived in tents. And God, speaking to them in a language they could understand, I'll pitch my tent and dwell in your midst. We see this in the Gospel of John. This, this promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. When God pitches his tent among, in the midst of his people, he dwells in our midst. Christ himself lives within us. And the promise is fulfilled. Now here's the beauty of this revelation of God. It's as if God, now through Christ, focuses the picture for us. If any of you out there wear glasses, you can associate with this. I mean, guys, do you, have you come to that place in your life where you, um, you need aid in seeing? Now, I, my visual problem is, has nothing to do with distance. I can see very well as far as distance is concerned. I, but which, which when things get close up is where I have my problem. You know, sometimes the, the kids or the wife will hand you something, and as soon as they hand it to you, you push it away because the closer it is, the more it hurts. You know, you know you're, you're crossing that line when you, when you put your glasses on and it feels better. It brings a sense of relief to you. Well, guys, in, in a sense, that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's as if he focused the picture for us a little bit more. He fine-tunes the picture, and we understand his revelation more and more. This ultimate revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Listen, this ultimate revelation of God in Jesus Christ is essential if we're to understand Exodus chapter 20. In fact, 
You'll never fully understand the Ten Commandments. You'll never be able to apply the Ten Commandments apart from an understanding of Jesus Christ. When I was in junior high school, I'll never forget this day sitting in civics class. It's amazing the things you re- the details you remember that far back. Sitting in junior high school in the civics class, and our teacher was leading the class in a discussion of government and the law. And the discussion moved to the topic of the Ten Commandments. Now, that, that's just a natural place to go. In fact, any decent ethics class today and in, in any university would include a discussion of the law of God. Now, the question came up in our civics class that day to the teacher, what are the Ten Commandments about? I'll never forget our teacher telling us this. I remember this as clear as his day. He said, I believe the Ten Commandments are, a sec- are the, the secret, are the way to get to heaven. In fact, his position was, if you obey the commandments, you can go to heaven. Now, guys, do you know why my civics teacher misapplied the Ten Commandments? Because he misunderstood the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, what was Christ's attitude toward the law? Well, we know from the New Testament he wasn't a moralist. John records in the first chapter that Jesus himself said he didn't come with a set of rules like Moses, but he came with grace and truth. He wasn't uh, a moralist, but neither was he opposed to Moses in the law. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees in the crowds, don't think that I've come to cancel the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law, to fulfill them. Now, having confirmed the law, Jesus would go on to demonstrate that the law is good. In fact, the law is like an aid. It aids us in bringing life to us. How is that so? The law, you see, said another way, the law is like a tutor, like a teacher who points us in the right direction. Guys, you know what Paul said the power of the the power of sin is in 1 Corinthians. You know what he said the power of sin is? Where does sin get its power? From the law. You think about that. And when we think about the power of sin, we, we think in the context of the devastation that sin wreaks in a person's, person's life. Sin condemns us. But where does sin get its power? From the law. It's for when sin comes against the moral character of God, then we understand how, why sin is so devastating in our lives. The power of sin is the law. And sin, like a tutor, points us in the right direction. It shows us that we need, indeed, we need a Savior. I don't know if you've noticed the sermon title or not, but uh, I chose three words to summarize Exodus 20. If you're taking notes, you ought to write these three words on the back of your bulletin. Three words that summarize Exodus 20. God, liberation, and holiness. God, liberation, and holiness. If you've gone through our new members class, you'll remember this section that we teach there where we introduce prospective members to the purpose statement of Grace of Anne. You know our purpose statement, reaching an unchurched world through maturing Christians. And right after we give that purpose statement, we spend a little time 
explaining to new members what we believe a maturing Christian looks like. Now, you remember that card where we printed up those things? At the top of the card it says, a maturing Christian is one who is growing in several areas. Then we list six or seven things. It starts with accountability, purity, integrity. And this past Sunday I taught our first new members class and I taught him through that section of what we think a maturing Christian looks like. I spent a little time with all seven points. At the end of uh, that section, I used this jar to illustrate our concept of Christian maturity here at Grace Event. Now, some of you have heard me use this illustration before. I, I don't think I've ever used it on a Sunday morning. I probably have on a Wednesday night or in a classroom setting, but I used this jar to, uh, to illustrate what a maturing Christian ought to, ought to look like. Now guys, um, a, a disclaimer here. This is a very simple illustration. In fact, I could use this same illustration over in children's church and they would understand what I'm talking about. So forgive me if I've gone down below our level, but it, it, it very beautifully illustrates my point today. This is a jar I keep in my office and I used to keep keep candy in it and it was sitting on a table just inside my door just for children when they'd come in they could treat themselves to candy and I couldn't keep candy in it because you know Jimmy Young comes by so often it was just I just couldn't keep it in so finally I just put the jar up put it in a, in my, in a drawer now, now I keep candy in a, in a desk drawer for the kids <laughs> but guys I keep this jar around because I use it to illustrate this point. There's air in this jar. Now, this, this jar has a, a, a sealed top, a little rubber gasket. It seals quite nicely. There's air in here. There's two ways to get the air out of this jar. You know how to do it? Pull a vacuum. Someone raise your hand. You can pull a vacuum. You can get air out of here by pulling a vacuum. There's another way. Fill it up with something. Fill it up with water, and you'll displace the air. Now, that simple illustration illustrates perfectly the two most popular approaches to the Christian life. One is what I call elimination. That is, creating a list of things we can't do, we avoid in the Christian life. Get this out of here and don't do this, and you know, thou shalt not. Now, guys, don't misunderstand me. There, there are things we ought to eliminate in the Christian life. But the danger in that approach to Christian living, the, the elimination approach is beginning to believe that by not doing certain things, God loves us more. We've you know, increased ourselves a few notches spiritually. It's a mistake. In fact, I don't even think the elimination approach is a biblical approach to Christian living. The other one is displacing the air by filling up this jar up with water. I call that saturation. That is, consuming our lives, filling our lives up with wholesome things, so much so that there's this almost a growing natural distaste for things that don't please God. And what are the things we fill our lives up with? Well, primarily they are the means of grace, like truth, understanding and a growing love for God's Word, uh, the, the sacraments, um, a fellowship of of a community of believers, accountability. Those things are important. I believe that's a biblical approach to the Christian life, saturation. But there's a danger there also. We can make the mistake of thinking that the more we read our Bible, the more God will love us. Now, guys, I'm about to share with you 
which what may be a radical statement for some of you, so listen very closely. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. God cannot love you any more or any less tomorrow than he does right now. Now, let me preface that with this. If you're in Christ, if you have cast yourself upon Christ, he cannot love you any more or any less tomorrow than he does right now. That's a liberating thought, isn't it? Now, why is it possible? Because God's love is perfect. In fact, both blessing, in the covenant relationship, both blessing and discipline originate from the same love. You know that last thing on the list of a maturing Christian is one who's growing in several areas. The last thing, number seven, is, remember it? Hilarity. You know, we, we should have said laughter, but it didn't end in T-Y, so we say hilarity. It is talking about laughter. There ought to be a lot of laughter among us. We, we just believe in that. But guys, we're not talking about laughter for laughter's sake. And a pagan laughs. What we're really talking about is a joy that wells up from within a soul that's been made fresh and complete by the unmerited favor of God. We're talking about a life that, that exemplifies the grace of God. We have found that joy because of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Again, it's almost ironic. After having loosed our bonds, he has bound us to obey him. We have become now slaves to Jesus Christ. Now, guys, the whole point in that closing illustration is this. This idea of God, liberation, and holiness. God has revealed himself to us. He has liberated us. He has set us free from the bonds of sin. It would be foolish for us to go back. Liberation. What's the response? The natural response is, is holiness. We have a desire to become like this God who has liberated us. Again, the primary ethic of the Christian life is love of God, a responsive love born out of God's liberating grace. Let's pray. Father, we have been reminded from your word today that we are a fortunate people. Not because of anything we have done, not because we deserve it, but because you as God, our God, with an outstretched arm, have drawn us to yourself. You have claimed us as your very own. You have set us free indeed from the, the bonds of sin enslavement to our own sin. We rejoice today in this newfound freedom. Father, I pray that as a result of having studied your word this morning, we would be stimulated, determined as we go out of this room today to live holy lives because you love us so. And finally, Lord, I would pray that that with an outstretched arm you would draw people to yourself who may be among us, who are outside the household of faith. Our Father, our prayer today is that you would save the lost. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.